Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 394 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab, the tour. We have completed our study of the early development of Skylab and some possible mission scenarios. Now I wanted to continue with the Skylab hardware that was actually built and sent into space. Let's call it a tour of Skylab. To progress logically, we will begin our tour of Skylab where its crews did, on the outside, during the fly-around before docking, with a look at the station's exterior. As a crew would approach Skylab in their Apollo Command module, they would see its docking port. That was called the Multiple Docking Adapter, or MDA. From the exterior, the MDA looked like a common cylinder marked by its two docking points. The first docking point, the one used by the crews docking with Skylab, was located on the end of the cylinder. The second docking port was called the radial docking port. It was located at a 90 degree angle from the first on the circumference of the multiple docking adapter. One very notable feature of the multiple docking adapter was the truss structure that surrounded it and connected it to the Apollo telescope mount or ATM. The Apollo telescope mount was located on the opposite side of the radial docking port. It was easy to recognize the Apollo telescope because of its four solar arrays, which looked like a windmill. Between the four rectangular solar arrays was a cylinder that contained the Apollo telescope mount's eight solar astronomy instruments. Covers built over the instrument apertures rotated back and forth. 
the cover would open when the instrument was used and closed when it was not, thus protecting it from possible contamination when it was not being used. Moving on from the exterior of the multiple docking adapter, the crew would next come to the airlock module, abbreviated AM. This module was a smaller cylinder partially tucked into the end of the exterior hull of the larger Skylab cylinder. Of course, the airlock module was most notable for its airlock featuring an exterior door allowing the crew to exit the station to conduct spacewalks outside Skylab. As an interesting side note, I'm sure you recall the program that spawned Skylab was called Apollo Applications due to its extensive use of Apollo hardware and technology. Strangely enough, the airlock module was actually a Gemini application. The door used for EVAs was actually a Gemini spacecraft hatch. Now at this point you may be asking, why would an astronaut need to go outside the station? And if an astronaut did need to go outside, why not just use the Apollo capsule as an airlock? Well, the airlock and all the spacewalk equipment on Skylab were designed for one purpose, just to allow the crew to retrieve and replace film from the solar telescope cameras on the Apollo telescope mount. According to astronaut Jim Kerwin, quote, there was no thought of the crews doing repairs or maintenance on other things. Little did we know, end quote. The outside of the airlock was partly covered by the fixed airlock shroud. This was a stout aluminum cylinder that was a forward extension of the skin of Skylab. The aft struts from which the Apollo telescope mount was suspended were mounted there. The truss structure had a path, including handholds, that space-walking astronauts could use to move from the airlock hatch to the Apollo telescope mount in order to change the film. Continuing farther past the airlock module, the crew would reach the largest segment of Skylab, the Cylindrical Orbital Workshop. This was the part made from the modified S-4B stage. As it was originally constructed, the most distinctive feature of this cylindrical structure were the two solar arrays. They resembled wings, which stretched out to either side and were intended to be used as the primary source of electrical power for the workshop. Prior to launch, the photovoltaic cells that made up the arrays were folded up flat against the beam that would hold them out from the sides of the Skylab. 
these beams folded down against the outside of the S4B stage in its launch configuration. This had the effect of making the wings much more aerodynamic for the flight into orbit. Now, all of this has been part of the fly-around a crew would conduct before docking. This is what they would see from the outside. After completing their fly-around, a crew would return to the top of the multiple docking adapter and dock their spacecraft to the station. The interior tour begins with the Apollo Command Module. After docking, the Command and Service Module became a part of the cluster. There were occasions when a few things needed to be done in the Command Module, but it was primarily used while docked with Skylab as a private communications station. Crew members could float up to the command module to conduct private space-to-ground communications with their loved ones at home on a backup frequency that was not available in the Skylab workshop. After opening the hatch and entering Skylab, the crew would first enter the multiple docking adapter. Recall the MDA at one point was planned to have four docking ports around its circumference. The multi-docking adapter lost three of the ports as a result of the change from the wet workshop to the dry workshop. When the wet workshop cluster, which had to be assembled individually in orbit, was replaced with a facility launched all at once as a dry workshop. The additional ports that were planned to be used to dock separately launched modules were not needed. Getting rid of three extra docking ports freed up a large amount of wall space around the multiple docking adapters circumference. This free space was then utilized to turn the module into an additional science annex. Here's astronaut Jack Lausma inside the multiple docking adapter. Hello, space fans. Uh, We thought you might enjoy a brief tour of the Skylab, America's first space station. With us up here at uh, 275 miles, uh, whirling around the Earth at 18,000 miles an hour and having a sunrise and a sunset every hour and a half. At the moment, you're looking uh, to the very base, or the basement of the workshop, where the crew quarters level is located. And you're looking from the very attic, or the tunnel, through which we entered the Skylab from the command module. It looked much like this as you see it when we first entered it. It looks kind of like a lonely house that's uh, been put away for a vacation for a while and everything is neatly in order. Just wait for its occupants to return, much as you would return to your house after vacation. But we put it in living condition and working order in in a pretty short time, and now we're living very comfortably up here and enjoying zero-G and getting lots of work done. The design of the interior of the multiple docking adapter was itself one of Skylab's experiments. 
The thinking was that in a microgravity environment in Earth's orbit, there was no need to follow the same design rules that were used back on Earth, such as why was it necessary to leave a floor empty to walk on in space? The ceilings were no more out of reach than walls, and equipment could be placed on them just as easily as on a wall. The multiple docking adapters served as an experiment in designing for that no-up-or-down environment. Equipment was installed all the way around the wall of the cylinder. This allowed more complete use of the available space than would be practical on the ground. The most important scientific equipment located in the multiple docking adapter was the operator's station for the Apollo telescope mount. It consisted of a large flat panel featuring the controls and displays for the Apollo telescope mount and, oddly enough, a narrow table in front of it. The ATM console was arguably evidence of the extent to which the module's designers were influenced by earthbound thinking. Even though care was taken to design the multi-docking adapter as an ideal microgravity work environment, the Apollo telescope mount console was also furnished with a chair as well for the astronauts to sit in while operating the controls. Joe Kerwin said, quote, We call it the commander's chair because it was Pete's idea. It didn't survive longer than about the first two weeks of our mission. We then put it away somewhere. And I don't think anyone retrieved it. End quote. Of course, Kerwin was referring to Pete Conrad. Also included in the multiple docking adapter was the materials processing facility. This equipment had a furnace used to study flammability and melting of solid materials in microgravity. The adapter also contained the Earth Resources Experiment equipment. Here's Jack Lausma. Another uh, set of experiments that we have on Skylab uh, is to uh, explore the industrial uses of space. Here before you have a, uh, an electron beam welding gun. That doesn't look like a welding gun that we have on Earth, but it's uh, operated by uh, high intensity or high energy beam of electrons, which will strike uh, metallic uh, material in this chamber, which can be evacuated. And it's uh, capable of melting the metal and of welding two pieces together. Additionally, uh, with this uh, chamber and the electric beam gun, we can uh, produce uh, perfect spears or ball bearings. So, uh, grow crystals in here, as you know, perhaps uh, much of metallurgy and uh, crystal growth and the formation of metals is very dependent upon gravity. We believe that we can grow perfect crystals and, uh, and perfect metals without the uh, presence of gravity, and we're examining that particular phenomenon here in Skylab. We're also uh, uh, doing flammability experiments where we can put 
a specimen to be burned inside this chamber and uh, determine how it burns in the absence of gravity. Fire, of course, and its propagation is dependent upon gravity on the Earth. And we believe that perhaps in uh, studying the, the flammability characteristics of several types of materials in this environment, uh, we can uh, determine how to make uh, materials in a better way to uh, equip our spacecraft in the future such that we'll have less probability of fire and uh, catastrophes, of, catastrophes of that sort. In addition, we expect that as time goes on, we'll find additional industrial uses of, uh, of space, and we, knowing the uh, Yankee ingenuity of the, the um, industrial complex in our country, I'm sure that they can come up with many applications of zero-G in space for the uh, production of, of metals and other items of use for our everyday consumption. Another place where we spend a lot of time uh, during every daylight is uh, at the control panel for the solar telescopes. We have eight solar telescopes with which we can continually look while we're on the uh, sunny side of the Earth. Our orbit uh, takes us about an hour and a half to completely go around the Earth. About an hour of this is spent in daylight, and the other half hour is spent in darkness, of course. But during that hour of daylight, we have somebody constantly at this panel during working hours looking at the sun with these eight different telescopes. Now, we can look at the sun on Earth as well. But, of course, on the Earth, the atmosphere blocks a good deal of the information that comes from the sun. It's a good thing it does, too, because otherwise we'd be fried to a crisp. But up above the Earth's atmosphere here, we can get all of the information that comes from the sun and record it on our telescopes, through our telescopes, onto film, and bring it back to ground for analysis of the sun. Of course, this is a very important study because, as you know, the sun controls our very environment, controls our weather, controls our very life and our existence on Earth. Besides, of course, learning more about our own uh, climate and weather environment and its relation to the sun, we believe that perhaps there are some energy process taking, processes taking place on the sun, which we can reproduce in our own laboratories and perhaps on Earth to generate new power sources, which are similar to those on the sun, to accomplish the various jobs that we face in our modern society. Advancing past the multiple docking adapter and heading further into Skylab, an astronaut would reach the structural transition section, which joined the larger diameter of the multiple docking adapter on one end with that of the smaller airlock module on the other. The structural transition section accommodated extensive systems operation equipment. Now we'll take a quick look at the uh, control panel that we use to control the electrical power system on board the Skylab. This is the control panel from which we do the from which we do this. The Skylab is run entirely on solar power. We have solar panels on the outside of the spacecraft, which collects sunlight and convert it into electricity. And then it's transferred into the spacecraft here, and we light our lights or run our equipment or heat our heaters or run our fans and do everything electrically with sunlight. Perhaps the day will come when uh, we do more uh, use uh, sunlight as an energy source uh, more than we do now. But this is uh, at least the beginning. Now you're going to ask me naturally what happens when we go behind the Earth for that star. Well, we have some batteries which are charged up during the daytime. So besides running the lights in the spacecraft during the daytime, 
the batteries are also charged up. And when we go into the nighttime, the batteries take over and supply that electricity that we need. And then in the daylight again, they're recharged, and the cycle continues every hour and a half to recharge the batteries, providing power for the whole space station. Additionally, we have a caution and warning system here. In the event that we have a fire or a rapid pressure loss or many other malfunctions within the spacecraft which need immediate attention, we have a caution and warning system here that alerts us both day and night to the problems. For example, I can uh, test the fire warning system in this manner. You can hear a loud siren. Master alarm and some warning lights come on. Or perhaps if we have a rapid pressure loss, we have another sound for that. Or if we have another warning tone, we have another sound. Nobody could ignore that. Nobody can sleep through it either. We also have to control our, our atmosphere in here. The Skylab has only five pounds of pressure in it. Of course, on Earth, you're used to 14.7 pounds of pressure. We only have five here, but we've made it up in such a way that we have at least as much oxygen as we breathe on the Earth. Whereas your atmosphere on the Earth is 80% nitrogen and only 20% oxygen, ours is just the other way around up here. It's about 70 or 80% oxygen, depending on uh, the variation of, of the, uh, the sensors, which are sensing it. And uh, it's only 20% nitrogen. Of course, nitrogen reduces the flammability characteristics of the atmosphere greatly. But it is controlled from this panel right here. And these are the meters that tell us what the pressure is in the various areas of our spacecraft. After the structural transition section came the previously mentioned airlock module used for EVAs. To prepare for an EVA, all three crew members would put on their spacesuits. Using the larger open area of the orbital workshop where the equipment was stored. The astronaut that was planning on staying inside stopped short of donning his helmet and gloves, but he did suit up the rest of the way in case a unforeseen problem occurred. The EVA umbilical cords that were kept in the airlock module were pulled out into the workshop during this time and connected to the suits of the two spacewalking crewmen. The umbilical furnished oxygen, cooling, and communications for the two astronauts who would go outside as well as tethering them to the station so they wouldn't float away. Once all three were suited up, the inside crewman would precede the others, moving through the airlock and into the multiple docking adapter slash structural transition section. There, he would attach himself to a shorter umbilical. Now, with his helmet still off, he would be breathing the atmosphere in the multiple docking adapter 
but due to the bulky spacesuit he was wearing, he needed the umbilical for cooling as well as for communications. The spacewalking crewman would move to the airlock and close both interior hatches, assisted on the multiple docking adapter side by the third crewman. Once the hatches were closed, the airlock module would be depressurized by venting its atmosphere into space. Then the outside hatch was opened and the two EVA astronauts could go outside. Once the EVA was completed, the two astronauts would return to the airlock module and close the outside hatch. The airlock module was repressurized and they would open equalization valves on both end hatches to assure equal pressure with the rest of the station. Finally, they would open both interior hatches, return to the workshop, and remove their suits. The station pressure regulation system would add atmosphere to the workshop as needed. This is the airlock compartment of our spacecraft. In a few moments, I'll tell you why it's called an airlock. Right here, you see a hatch. This is our extravehicular activity hatch. Periodically, we have to go outside and replace the film and the cameras in the solar telescopes. We put up a sail to uh, help protect the uh, workshop from the heat of the sun. And we also went out there and hooked up the rate gyro uh, package. But uh, we have three ABAs during our mission. We've already completed two. And this is the hatch that we use to go out there. We get our spacesuits on, hook ourselves up to our umbilicals, which are located in these boxes. And then we get in this airlock two men at a time with all of the uh, extra equipment and paraphernalia that we have to take out with us. But now you ask the question, what happens when you open this hatch? Doesn't all the air leak out? Well, the answer is partially yes and partially no, and that's why this is called an airlock. Because at the forward edge here, you see a big hatch, and behind me there's another hatch which is similar. These hatches can both be closed to shut off this little compartment right here from the rest of the spacecraft. When we do this, both ends of the spacecraft are isolated and the air can't leak out when we open this hatch. So what we do is we just simply open this valve, which allows all of the gas and atmosphere to escape from the small lock compartment, and it becomes a vacuum just like space with air on either side of it. Then we can open the hatch and go outside and do our work. When we come back in, it's just the reverse process. We close the hatch, close this valve, and then uh, the other man who's left inside the spacecraft can open one of the valves in the hatch from the pressurized side of the spacecraft and let the air in and replenish the supply, get it back up to five pounds so that then we can open the hatch and get our, get our spacesuits off. Now, due to the airlock module's location near the middle of Skylab, if there was a problem with repressurizing the airlock module, this could jeopardize the entire mission. Perhaps if for some reason the airlock module were unable to hold an atmosphere. This contingency was well thought out and there was a plan. The plan was the third crewman would put on his helmet and gloves and then depressurize the multiple docking adapter. 
the other two astronauts would disconnect their umbilicals from the airlock module and use the reserve oxygen supply in their suits while they opened the interior hatch between the two modules and moved into the docking adapter. Once there, they would reconnect their umbilicals in the multiple docking adapter and then seal it off from the airlock module and repressurize it. Hopefully then, they, or Mission Control, could figure out a way to fix the problem. But if they couldn't, the mission would have to be aborted. The astronauts would then leave the multiple docking adapter for the command module and return home. Proceeding deeper into the station, one would next reach the large orbital workshop. This section was divided into two floors, with a hole in the middle of the floor of the top story that allowed the crew to move between them. Similar to the multiple docking adapter, the workshop was part of the experiment in designing for microgravity. Whereas the multiple docking adapter was designed without consideration for the direction of gravitational force on the ground, the approach to the workshop design was to keep in mind that it would be used by men whose brains were used to 1G environment in which they had lived their entire lives. The first floor of the workshop was arranged with a very definite up and down. Furnishings and large equipment set on the floor like they would on Earth, with few exceptions. And the walls functioned more or less the way walls normally do here on Earth. The upper story was more of a hybrid, with variations from the 1G-based design of the lower section. The area at the top of the workshop was very unusual by spacecraft standards. Traditionally, spacecraft design is a field in which mass and volume are very limited. This is reflected by the challenge and cost of moving anything from the surface of the Earth into orbit. As a result, spacecrafts tend to be relatively cramped with every inch utilized to the nth degree. While later spacecraft like the Space Shuttle and the International Space Station were roomy compared to early vehicles like the Mercury and Gemini capsules, their designs still reflected the basic limitations in putting any mass into orbit. Skylab had a couple of advantages that made it exceptional in those basic limitations. The availability of the Saturn V as the launch vehicle and the decision to use an S-4B for the orbital workshop meant that Skylab was much less constrained by the traditional mass and volume limitations. 
Nowhere was that more apparent than at the top of the workshop, which featured an open volume that by spacecraft standards was extremely large, while the lower floor was divided into separate rooms. The upper floor, the larger of the two, was not divided. An astronaut could float freely in the middle of this volume without bumping into walls. Believe it or not, Skylab designers were concerned that this roominess could present a real problem. Designers feared that an astronaut could get stranded in the middle of this open volume without anything nearby to push off from. The astronaut would have to rely on air currents or his crewmates to push him back towards the solid surface. To eliminate this perceived danger and to provide for easier movement through Skylab, designers provided a fireman's pole in the middle of the workshop, running from one end to the other. The idea was that the astronauts would hold on to the pole to move up and down the workshop so there would be no chance of becoming stuck in the open volume. However, the pole proved completely unnecessary. Rather, the crews found that it just got in the way. The crews discovered it was quite easy to push off from a surface and glide to one's destination without using a pole. The pole turned out to just be a nuisance. So, the first crew took it down for the duration of their stay. But at the end of their mission, they very politely restored Skylab to factory specs by reinstalling the pole for the second crew. Now the second crew did the same thing. They took down the pole promptly after arriving, but they also put it back before they left so that the third crew could remove it one last time. The upper portion of the workshop dome was left almost vacant for experiments requiring a lot of room for checkout, such as the man maneuvering unit prototype. Just below this was a ring of white storage lockers, which the first crew discovered worked well as a track to enable easy shirt sleeve jogging and tumbling around the inside circumference of the workshop. Now we'll proceed on further down to the uh, upper area of the orbital workshop where we uh, also spend a lot of time doing a lot of work. This is a converted hydrogen tank. This uh, itself was a rocket one day that uh, was used to uh, send men to the moon or the same type. This is the hydrogen tank. It's been converted into our working quarters. I'd like to uh, show you around here briefly as well. So uh, you'll notice that we get around quite readily in zero-G. Uh, we've been here long enough now to the point where zero-G seems as normal as uh, just walking down the street. We uh, just float anywhere. Imagine how uh, neat it would be to be able to float up to the uh, peak of your house to paint it or to whistle up into a tree to uh, retrieve your kite or something like that. Well, that's what we do here. We just want to show you these dome lockers. So we go on up to them and uh, 
we uh, have a ring of dome lockers in the uh, workshop here in which we uh, store a lot of equipment and extra things that we need to use. We have to resupply the various things in the workshop frequently, and so uh, this is where we keep spare parts, extra clothes, extra towels, extra bags, disposal bags, uh, all kinds of extra equipment, extra film, extra tapes. Here's a whole load of towels in here. If they don't come out, I'll just show you what that looks like. So we keep a lot of extra towels right in there. So we have a whole ring of these dome lockers, and sometimes it's fun just to run around these dome lockers. We can get enough centrifugal force going so that we can stay touching the dome lockers and just run around them for a little exercise, a little fun. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 394 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab The Tour Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode will be released on August 11th. Should you need to contact me, please use the new email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 213 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. My Twitter handle is working again. It is the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hist. So please follow if you can. I'm up to 155 followers, and I try to follow you back if you let me. I have a few afterthoughts, of course. I would like to apologize for my mispronunciation of words and names. It's hard working out a southern accent, you know. <laughs> and uh, I've tried to try to been been working on that over the past nine and a half years, but you know, I'm just not that good at getting the southern out of it. Most of this episode came from David Hitt's book, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story. He has a chapter in the book that gives an excellent tour of the Skylab, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, also, very helpful this episode was the NASA Skylab Owner's Manual by David Baker. He also does an excellent job on the hardware of Skylab. If you're interested in hardware, that's the book to get. We will continue the tour of Skylab next episode. While I was was uh, researching for this episode, I got to thinking, 
Why did they need to have the third astronaut that wasn't going outside suit up and go to the multi, multiple docking adapter? Why couldn't he just go about his business in the workshop? Then, as I read more and thought about it, I understood it. The main reason was the evacuation plan. If the airlock module couldn't be depressurized, or I'm sorry, could not be pressurized after an EVA, the third astronaut would be on the side of the airlock that connected to the Apollo command module. In case they had to abort the mission, and he would already have his suit on, instead of being on the workshop side of the airlock module, unable to egress to the command module. Of course, I can think of a few other reasons as well, but the EVA plan, in my opinion, was very well thought out. He needed to be exactly where he was, the third astronaut. What did you think of the design of the MDA with no up or down? Personally, I liked it. I think it made sense. It makes sense in areas with micro G. But if a space station or even a spaceship was going to have a very long term crew, say a mission to Mars, it would be nice to have a section with at least partial gravity, and it would be more healthy, I believe, as well. And in that case, an up or down design would make more sense to me. One last thing, the Skylab station was so big and roomy, that's what I got out of this episode, and it could be put up in one Saturn V flight, one flight, Puts it up there. Not the 30 to 40 or whatever it took for the shuttle to put up the ISS. One flight put it up there. Of course, the ISS is a whole lot bigger and more complicated. But putting up a Skylab seems pretty convenient and cost effective. NASA, it seems to me, could have put up several more of these before we reached the shuttle age. And I think if they had, we would have been a lot further along on our research. So that is another opportunity lost due to lack of funding and political leadership. For those interested in the house progress, absolutely nothing has been done off the punch list for the past two weeks. And what's more disturbing is I continue to notice more cracks in the basement floor. Now, is this normal? For those of you who have a basement, if you do or do not have cracks in the concrete, now I have cracks that are 10 to 12 feet long, I just don't understand a a new house that has that many cracks. Anyway, if you do or do not have cracks in the concrete, send me an email and let me know if this is normal or not, if it's something to be expected. 
you uh, may remember my email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and that is your house update. Over the past fortnight, we received four new donations and pledges I'd like to thank. I would like to thank the magnificent Captain Duck from Florida who donated at the NASA level. That's the highest level, folks, and earned a satellite emoji. Thank you very, very much, Captain Duck. Magnus B. from Australia donated at the shuttle level and earned an alien emoji. Henry E. donated at the Sputnik level. David D. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 254, which is back to the level that we had in June. Last episode, it seemed as though we had lost 10 Patreons, but all of a sudden they mysteriously came back. So we're back up to 254 where we left off in June. I do not understand the mysteries of Patreon and how that happens. It's the first time it's ever happened. So I have no clue why it went down to 244 or whatever it was I announced, but that's what happened. And now it's up to 254. So go figure. Is enough to get me nervous. <laughs> Our goal, of course, is to reach 300 by the end of 2022, a goal not yet achieved in my lifetime. <laughs> Our total donors for 2022 have reached 333 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. So if you are enjoying this podcast that's been running nine and a half years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you'd like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about 11 months. If you don't know what that is, just email me and I will give it to you, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, Here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Well, the grandchildren launched their model rockets with Mike last week, and boy, did they enjoy it. A large black snake slithered across our path, but that did not deter their excitement. And we were nicely surprised that all the rockets were recovered. It was great. Now for the drawing. The winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Pete Connor. Pete Connor, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 333 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, 
Flickr, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. That's all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 395 posted by August 11th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.